0: Section 14 of A Bunch of Keys Where They Were Found, and What They Might Have Unlocked. A Christmas Book, edited by Tom Hood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Fallis. Three Keys on a Small Ring of Their Own by C. W. Scott Chapter 1 The Key of the Dressing Room When Mr. Everest announced one morning with as grave a face as he could put on for the occasion that Aunt Rachel had decided to come and live at Riverside, a very serious discussion ensued— They had all expected it for some time past, and though Edith Everest entirely agreed with her father in the course he had thought fit to adopt, she, quite as much as her little sister Mabel, secretly hoped that the evil day would somehow or other be averted. And indeed it was a horrid shame, as Mabel expressed it, to have to introduce an element of discord into that peaceable and unusually happy family circle. Mrs. Everest had died soon after the birth of Mabel, the youngest girl, and ever since then the father and his two daughters had lived together more like brothers and sisters than anything else.' The house in which they resided was charmingly situated in the heart of the very loveliest part of the Thames scenery. And Mr. Everest invariably found it no easy task to tear his pretty nymphs away from their river home just when the water lilies were beginning to unfold themselves and the forget-me-nots to bloom in order to respond to the authoritative summons of the fashionable world and see the roses on their cheeks fade under the influences of glare and gaslight late hours and London ballrooms. Mr. Everest was a very wealthy London merchant, and though, of course, he could have lived on a far grander scale than he did at Maple Durham, he was not at all anxious to take any step which his children would have objected to, and, indeed, would himself have thought it a great hardship to be compelled to leave the dear old home. Each year slipped away merrily enough, but there was one fact which seemed entirely to have been passed over or forgotten at Riverside. Edith Everest was no longer a child, but had suddenly bloomed into a tall and singularly handsome young woman. No wonder, then, that Aunt Rachel shuddered when she heard that her beautiful niece was running about wild in the country, and suddenly became painfully alive to the fact that there was no one at hand to form the poor child's character, as she called it, or to guide her safely through the intricate paths which wind round that great institution-styled Vanity Fair. Mrs. Richardson, or Aunt Rachel, was a widow of about five or six-and-fifty, and and a very great person in her own estimation. She was certainly of the world worldly— and though of good but certainly by no means distinguished family, set up a god-called aristocracy, and worshipped it, and was continually parading her hackneyed platitudes about birth, family, and gentle blood, her manner no one could find fault with, and her address was very ladylike, though perhaps rather overstudied, and she had the good sense so to control her temper, which was not of the sweetest as to reserve the worst of it entirely for those immediately and closely connected with her. On the death of her husband, she came into a very large property, both in land and money, of which last article she certainly was not prodigal, for indeed there were people unkind enough to declare that the worthy lady was not only a sparing woman, but what they could not help calling a close-fisted one.' The generous offer, then, of her services, in Edith Everest's behalf, was not so disinterested as it might have appeared at first sight, since on being installed in her brother's comfortable mansion in Hyde Park Gardens during the approaching season, it was quite possible both to forget and forego the cares and expense of her own establishment at Rutland Gate.' Be that as it may, though both Mr. Everest and Edith were perfectly aware that Aunt Rachel was a necessary evil, they determined to do their best to make everything smooth for her when she arrived.' and made up their minds to enjoy thoroughly the last little bit of peace and quiet that was left them at Riverside, before the time came for their departure for town, when Aunt Rachel was really to arrive, and Edith was to be introduced into the very best society, and Mabel was to go through a course of governesses and fashionable masters. That last happy month passed too quickly for all of them, and long before it was wanted came the day which had been fixed for their departure. Mabel took her last peep at the swan's nest, hidden by the rushes in the stream— Edith made her last sketch of the pretty house, now almost lost among the fresh green trees, and they all walked for the last time in the woods newly carpeted with primroses and sweet with the early violets, and then came the sound of carriage wheels and the lumbering of trunks and an inevitable farewell to dear old Riverside." It was some consolation to them all that Aunt Rachel altered her plans so far as coming down into the country was concerned, but when the Everests arrived at Hyde Park Gardens, they found her fully installed, and she received them most graciously. Seeing that Edith Everest was a very lovable as well as an unusually beautiful girl, and when to these charms was added the fact that she was likely to be a very rich heiress, it may reasonably cause some surprise that she found herself at the age of twenty with her heart still in her own possession. Strange to say, there had really been no lovers. But then Edith was not quite like the ordinary run of young ladies, who, when similarly gifted, seldom conduct themselves in as sensible a manner, to begin with. She despised anything like a flirtation, and what is more, showed as decidedly as her sweet and gentle nature would permit how much she despised it to those who ever attempted this dangerous, but at the same time very enjoyable, amusement. It was quite evident that love with her would be a great absorbing passion, and it was equally certain that she could never teach herself to love. Those who knew her best felt that her heart, when once gained, would be a prize almost beyond all price. Besides, she was too happy with her father and sister to think of tearing herself away from them, and too contented with her present position to dream of throwing herself in love's way— There was a cousin, certainly, one Arthur Oldham, of whom she was excessively fond. It would have been a difficult matter to define the kind of love she felt for him. It was somehow stronger than a sister's love, but it seemed to stop short of the actual reality.' They had been brought up together ever since they were children, and many were the delightful days they spent together when Arthur was a little manly fellow, glowing with all the pride and gentlemanliness of a full-blown public school boy, and Edith, reveling in the glories of short frocks and mischief. And after that, Arthur went to Oxford, and insisted upon spending nearly all the vake at Riverside, and then the time slipped away again, and he found himself in chambers at the temple, pretending to read hard at law, but really writing leading articles and papers for magazines, and constantly running away from Saturday to Monday to the house down by the river, where he always received the warmest of welcomes, till he came to be considered quite a member of the family, in fact, he was, ever called away by one low voice to one dear neighborhood, and often in his walks with Edith claimed a distant kinship to the gracious blood, that shook the heart of Edith hearing him. There was no doubt whatever about his love for Edith Everest, and he very frequently reflected that he was not altogether behaving well in putting himself so far in a false position, and in continually plunging further and further into the wood. But the poor fellow could not help it. He knew perfectly well that he ought to have gone abroad, and taught himself to forget all about the girl that was so near and yet so far from him. But then, like many of us, he had not the moral courage to carry his honest thoughts into execution, and so they wandered hour by hour, gathered the blossom that rebloomed and drank the magic cup that filled itself anew. Edith Everest had not been in London six weeks before she was really in love— Her father was naturally rather proud of his beautiful daughter, and he used to be very fond of taking a stroll after church on Sunday afternoons, just to see the fine folks in the park. Edith and Verib they went with him— It was a duty walk at first with her, as she never hesitated to say that she strongly objected to the absurd custom, as she used to call it, of parading up and down to look and be looked at. It was not long, however, before she looked forward to those Sunday walks with feverish excitement— Times had changed with her. The whole course and purpose of her life was somehow altered, and all through the day there was one face that haunted her. Why was it that her heart beat so quickly, and that her hand almost trembled in her father's arm on one of those eventful Sundays?' There had been no bow, no recognition, no one had spoken to her, but still she knew as well as possible there was one face in the crowd she had seen before, and more than that, she felt that its influence was very great indeed. Again their eyes met, again a thrill of excitement seemed to rush through all her veins, and again she moved on with the crowd, and all seemed to darkness. Now she remembered it all. She had been staying in Gloucestershire the year before, and during her visit had taken the well-known trip from Bristol to Chepstow, and so along the babbling wye, to lovely Tintern Abbey, not forgetting a peep from the wind-cliff, from which may be seen one of the loveliest views in all England. The boat was full of excursionists, of course, and everybody, as very often happens, was discussing everybody else. The usual newly married couple was soon singled out, and heartlessly pulled to bits. And so was the old snob from London, loud of voice and full as to his pockets with brandy flasks and banknotes. The three young men, quietly smoking short pipes on the paddle-box, were evidently on a walking tour. The tallest and handsome of the three interested Edith singularly. He laughed so loud and was so full of fun, and at the same time seemed to talk so well and sensibly, for she could not help hearing every word that was said, that she took to him at once, and somehow or other, when there was a lull in the conversation, Edith's eyes wandered away from the scenery, and invariably met his, which were constantly fixed on her. Wherever they went, they met that day, on the steps of the hotel at Chepstow, in the little arbour on the topmost heights of the Windcliff, amidst the ruins of Tintern Abbey. They seemed to be drawn together by a kind of fate, and the last time they came across one another they could not possibly help smiling. Of course they never spoke, and of course when evening came on, they were many miles apart. The same face that haunted Edith all that day, now seemed to pursue her wherever she went in London. At last they met, at a public ball in London, and were very soon introduced to one another. They had a good laugh over what they chose to call quite a romantic adventure, and soon became firm friends. They danced repeatedly together that evening, and talked long and earnestly about the chance of meeting again, and even made arrangements about reserved waltzes and special quadrilles in case they did. "'What a singularly handsome and gentlemanly man Lord Roseworth is!' "'said Aunt Rachel, as they drove home from the ball in the early hours of the morning. "'And who might he be?' replied Edith, "'knowing well her aunt's particular hobby about well-bred people, "'and imagining she had been whiling away the time "'in the enjoyment of a quiet tete-a-tete with some aristocratic old beau.' Why, surely, my dear child, you know who that young man was with whom you were dancing so repeatedly, and whose conversation seemed to please you vastly. Is his name Lord Roseworth? A real life lord? You don't say so. I never knew that the nobility could be half so entertaining. He is a most delightful man, one of the nicest men, in fact, I have ever met. Aunt Rachel was delighted. Here was an opportunity, what a chance to try her hand at matchmaking, a match indeed that would do her such infinite credit. She determined she would try. Edith guessed the meaning of all the unusual affection on separating for the night, and now for the first time understood why she had been allowed to make herself conspicuous with Lord Roseworth, that evening. She determined, however, to flatter the good lady's vanity so far as to withhold from her all about the Tintern Abbey meeting in order to make her believe that she was ready to be guided by her aunt's sound advice. After that, Edith Everest and Lord Roseworth met constantly, and Aunt Rachel helped on the love making wonderfully. Little Mabel Everest was woke up very early one sunny summer morning by someone entering her room. Her sister stood at the foot of the bed looking very lovely, but evidently just returned from a ball, as her tumbled dress and faded flowers showed. In a few moments, the two sisters were clasped in one another's arms, and both were shedding tears. Little Mabel's tears sprung from her heart and were very bitter, but Edith's were tears of joy. Edith Everest and Lord Roseworth were engaged to be married. About this time, everybody noticed how Ill, Mr. Everest was looking, and remarked that he seemed vexed and anxious. He was evidently working too hard, and his daughters used to protest against the late hours in the city, and declared it was high time for him to give up work, and live quietly at home and enjoy himself. If there was one thing he disliked talking about more than another, it was his daughter's engagement. Both the young people were anxious that some understanding should be come to on the matter, for Mr. Everest had really never formally given his consent. Lord Roseworth's appeals had been put off from time to time, and Aunt Rachel's advice had been quietly resisted. Edith was not at all anxious to force the matter on her father, as she was well aware that it seemed a painful subject to him. He did not like the idea of parting with her, she thought, and she loved him for it more than ever. At last, however, Lord Roseworth persuaded her to try what her influence would do, so one morning she followed her father after breakfast into the study. For the first time in their life, the father and daughter seemed constrained. Mr. Everest walked about the room uneasily, and talked about the most indifferent subjects, while Edith stood by the fireplace, nervously playing with her watch-chain. At last she spoke out boldly, and he was obliged to listen. After the affair had been quietly discussed some little time, Edith said quietly, "'Tell me, my dear father, your real opinion about the matter. "'You know I will be guided by you in everything. "'Have you any very serious objection?' "'Not in the least, my child, not in the least.' "'And then he came quite close to her, and when he had kissed her, he said, "'It is no use beating about the bush. "'We have never hid any secrets from one another, have we, my child?' "'You must know everything one day or other. "'So it may just as well be known at once.' "'Edith shuddered at those words, "'and looked earnestly at her father as he went on. "'It has nothing whatever to do with Lord Roseworth. "'He is an excellent fellow in his way, "'and would I trust make you a good husband. "'But do you think, my child, "'he would care to marry a girl without a penny?' "'He thinks you are an heiress, Edith, and so you were. "'I have ruined you as well as myself.' "'Ruined, father? Absolutely ruined? You can't mean that.' "'Yes, Edith, it is only too true. "'Everything has turned out badly with me lately. "'I thought to make matters better by speculating madly. "'Now I've lost nearly everything. "'If I were young and active as I once was, "'I should not care so much. "'But these last few years have aged me wonderfully, "'and I am almost past work. "'But God's will be done, my darling. "'God's will be done.' Great big tears rolled down the poor man's face as he spoke thus and looked imploringly at his daughter. She bore up wonderfully and tried to comfort him and persuade him that all perhaps might be well. You were always my right hand, Edith, and I am sure you will bear with me now. Besides, you have courage and will always make your way. My heart sinks, though, when I think of the misery I have brought on poor Mabel. Don't fret yourself about Mabel, father. We will take care of her, and when she is old enough, I'll find her a husband and make her as happy as I shall be. You will take care of her. A husband, happy, murmured the old man. "'Yes, why, of course, matters are not nearly so black as they look. "'Lord Roseworth has quite enough for us all to live upon for a time, "'and I am sure his kind, generous heart would be the first to feel for us.' "'My poor child, my poor, poor child,' sobbed Mr. Everest.' He could say no more, but he thought of the pain and sorrow that might be in store for this noble girl, and moaned again in anguish at the misery he had caused. "'Promise me one thing, Edith,' said her father before they parted. "'Do not breathe a word of all this just yet. Nothing is at all definitely settled, but I shall receive a letter in a few days, which will decide our fate.' "'Meanwhile, we will all go down to Riverside for a week "'and try to forget all about the misery and sorrow "'that seems threatening in the distance. "'Write one line to Arthur Oldham, "'who has just returned from Italy, "'and ask him to come down to us as usual on Saturday, "'if you don't mind, "'and if you can possibly contrive to exist "'without seeing Lord Roseworth for a week. "'You will oblige me excessively.' Sent him a note, however, to say that his anxiety will soon be relieved. "'The letter must come by the end of the week, and that will settle everything.' "'Accordingly, they all went down to Riverside, and Arthur Oldham came on the Saturday. "'He noticed the fretful anxiety of Mr. Everest, "'and his heart bled at the sight of Eda's pale, careworn face.' He knew nothing of what had passed between the father and daughter, and there had been no time for him to hear of Edith's engagement, but he had heard something very serious at Marseilles, and felt he had a duty to perform. Arthur and Edith walked together in the woods on the Sunday evening, and he was determined, cost what it might, to tell her all. I have something most important to tell you. Said he, Something which I am sure you ought to know, but I never really felt such a difficulty in speaking to you as I do now. Nonsense, Arthur, said his cousin. We must never have any secrets, and I somehow fancy the day is not very far distant when I shall want your serious assistance. The fact is, said Arthur, I heard from the very best authority at Marseilles. "'that your father's affairs were in a terrible condition, "'and that the failure of his house was all but imminent.' "'Edith became deadly pale, and turning away said, "'It can't be true.' "'Let us hope and pray that it is not,' said Arthur. "'At any rate I felt that you, of all others, ought to know this.' "'And there is another thing which you ought and which you must know, Edith, "'no matter what fate is in store for both of us. "'I love you with all my heart and soul "'and would work for you to the last day of my life.' "'Edith removed from his arm the hand which he was clasping passionately "'and said to him almost fiercely, "'You have no right to talk to me like this. "'I am engaged.' Poor Arthur could hardly keep back his tears. He struggled bravely to explain that he knew nothing of what had passed while he was away and to apologize for his hastiness, but he utterly broke down and, leaving his cousin as soon as he could, had his dark hour unseen and rose and passed, bearing a lifelong hunger in his heart. But Arthur Oldham went up to London that night with Edith's, as well as Mabel's, kisses fresh on his lips. They were both his sisters now. And so they were all back again at Pleasant Riverside. But somehow or other a dark cloud seemed to be hanging over the once merry little family. No one thought of alluding to the difference, but it was very evident that both father and daughters felt that something was amiss— "'Mabel, who was, of course, entirely ignorant of the real cause of the melancholy fit, "'which seemed so entirely to have taken possession of her father and sister, "'tried to laugh it all off, and to tease the refractory ones into happiness again, "'but Edith resisted all her pretty sister's entreaties "'to accompany her in the little boat along the backwater, "'in search of water-lilies and forget-me-nots for the drawing-room table.' and Mr. Everest could not be persuaded to shake off his gloominess and ramble with Mabel in the woods to hunt out new specimens for her fern case. On the Friday evening, after Arthur Oldham had left, a letter arrived for Mr. Everest, and Edith contrived to get her father alone before going to bed in order to ask him about its contents. "'Well, nothing is absolutely settled, my darling, after all,' said he, but it will be necessary for me to go up to London by the very first train. Just tell the servants to call me by six o'clock, and even earlier, if possible, I shall have a good deal of work to do before starting. Don't you think of getting up in the morning, as they will get me my breakfast, and I don't intend to rob you of any of the sleep, which will do you so much good after all this worry.' It is not very likely I shall let you leave us in that miserable way, you silly man, said Edith, kissing her father affectionately. I shall get up and see after you, of course. At any rate, try and get this horrid business over as quickly as you can, and mind and come back tomorrow evening, and let me know how you have sped. Mr. Everest turned away his head and sighed bitterly, but then... "'Seeming to recollect himself, he moved to his daughter again, saying, "'Well, goodbye, and God bless you, my very darling child.' "'Not goodbye, not goodbye,' replied Mabel through her tears. "'The tears were rolling fast down the poor old man's cheeks. "'Again and again he pressed his daughter to his heart and covered her face with kisses, "'and so they parted for the night.' In the dull haze of the early morning, Edith Everest was awakened by a dull, heavy knocking, which seemed to echo through the house. She had passed a miserable, restless night, and had lain awake for hours, fearful lest she should by chance oversleep herself, and anxious about the events of the last few weeks. Nature, however, at last would have her way, and towards morning, Edith fell into a deep sleep. At first, the knocking was somehow mixed up with her dream, and though she evidently heard it, she was not conscious enough to be really disturbed. At last, a long, piercing, awful shriek rang through the half-empty house, and then the poor girl sat up, terrified in her bed— the shriek was still echoing in her ears as she began to collect her thoughts. All at once, a terrible suspicion flashed across her, and it was the work of a moment to wrap a shawl hurriedly round her shoulders and to hasten downstairs. Outside her father's dressing room door stood the servant who had been appointed to call him, wringing her hands and moaning loudly. Oh, Miss Edith, for heaven's sake, don't go in there. Something terrible must have happened to Master. He's lying on the ground and won't speak. Edith, pale as death and speechless, hurried past the servant and flew into the room. A faint, sickly smell seemed to pervade the apartment, and as she entered, her foot struck upon something which rolled away under the wardrobe. Nerving herself to the uttermost, she waved away a whole crowd of servants that were hurrying into the room, and then she shut the door and was alone with her dead father. The first thing she did was to secure that suspicious something which had rolled away. It was a little vile. She next stooped to kiss the lips which but a few hours before had whispered, "'God bless you!' in her ears." but the faint, sickly smell was overpowering her, and with difficulty she reached the door, round which the whole household was now gathered. "'Your master has died suddenly,' she murmured. "'It must have been heart disease.' And then she turned round and locked the door. This done, she went slowly back to her own room— but her nerves would stand no more. Directly she had thrown herself on her bed. She fainted away with the key of the dressing room tightly clasped in her hand. End of section 14